Good morning, everyone. This morning, we need to talk about what seems like everyone is, is talking about. And you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you turn on the radio, and you hear about it. I was getting a haircut last week, talking to my barber about it, and I don't know if she'd like what I had to say because she proceeded to give me the worst haircut she's ever given me. It's true. It's true. Standing in the grocery line, people are talking about, you look at the tabloids, they're talking about it. So today, we want to be relevant, and we are talking about it. We're talking about Pokemon Go. How it's sweeping the nation. Today, we want to talk about Trump. We want to talk about politics. We want to talk about the election. I'm very thankful for Mark Dever. I got a lot of my material from a sermon he gave. Excited about this message because it's just really so relevant. But let me tell you what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to get up here today and tell you something that you've probably already been hearing on the radio or on the news. Didn't want to do that. I'm not a political analyst. What I thought would be really appropriate for us today is just to find out what God's word says about everything that's happening in politics right now. And then to ask, what does Jesus, or what did Jesus say about our politics and our political engagement? I thought that would be a really appropriate thing to address right here in church to be super relevant. And you know another thing we, we really can't do when you're just like listening to the radio or watching TV and would be so appropriate in church? What about prayer? How about today, as a community of God, we spend a little bit of time towards the end of the message, and everyone gets a chance to pray? Some people think that prayer is passivity. It is not passivity. It is calling upon the highest power in the entire universe, that's God's power, to do something amazing in the situation. Can I get an amen there? Thanks, Mark. So today we're looking at what Jesus said about political engagement. And we're not looking at a big, long speech that Jesus gave. In fact, it's just 16 words. Just 16 words, one statement, really, that we're building the whole message for today on. But you know something about those 16 words? Is that those 16 words shocked the world. And I heard one historian say that these 16 words were the foundation of Western political philosophy. These words have changed the way that human history has understood government. And that's where we're going today. Now let me describe the scene to you. Uh, Bobby took us through it, through the narrative. There's a bunch of political enemies of Jesus. And they conspire together and they come up with this really, really, really clever question because they want to trap Jesus. Now, anyone in leadership or politics kind of knows a situation where you're in a mixed crowd sort of gathering. And there are certain issues that are out there that are so explosive and so incendiary that if someone just brings it up in this mixed crowd situation, it's kind of like lighting a match and throwing it. And then there's this huge explosion. Because in the environment, all this stuff was really, really flammatory. 
you should understand that the Roman tax in this context was so explosive. People were so emotional about that issue. There were people in the crowd who were pro-tax. There were people in the crowd who were against the tax. And here's the thing. If Jesus said something that's pro-tax, he's going to lose his popularity. And if Jesus says something that's against it, well, he's going to lose his life. There is no win in this situation. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever watched the debates. Whenever there was an explosive issue, what the politicians would tend to do is something that my friend would describe a, look, there's a puppy argument, right? So someone brings up the Roman, Roman tax, that is a really good, oh, look, there's a puppy, you know, that, that was, that's how politicians do it. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus actually knows it's a trap. And Jesus decides, well, I'm going to actually address your question straight on. That's the courage of Jesus. Actually, it's the genius of Jesus. He's not afraid, and he goes right for it, okay? Of course, when he goes right for it, he realizes that it's a trap, and Jesus just calls it like it is. This is verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, let me look at it. They brought him one, and he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar. And then Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Okay, now when we talk about 16 words that changed the world, those are the first part of those words, the first eight, I believe. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, to really kind of illustrate this, to make it come alive, I thought it would be better to actually act it out, all right? I thought it just to make, makes the points a little bit more clear. So here is Jesus with a mixed crowd sort of situation. I bet you in this situation there's Democrats and there's Republicans here in this congregation, probably. And what does he say when they ask him this question, should we pay the Roman tax? Jesus says, bring me a denarius, right? Now, uh, so if I'm going to relate it to this day and this time, I would say, can someone bring me like a $10 bill? Can someone bring me like a $20 bill? Can someone here, like, reach into your wallet and actually give me a $20 bill? Chris, oh, Chris, who's, who's fastest? Dion. Dion's not even trying. Um, how about, how about, there, there's Mark. Thank you, Mark. Okay, Mark. Mark is giving me a $20 bill. So Jesus says, bring me a denarius, right? And, and here I am. I have a $20 bill. Bring me a $20 bill. Now, I imagine at this moment Jesus probably held up the denarius. Probably, Right? And so I'm just going to hold up the $20 bill, and Jesus says, whose likeness is this? And then the people said, no, 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 people said Caesar, not Andrew Jackson, all right? But I'm holding up the 20, and I'm asking you all, whose likeness is this? And then you guys do say, Andrew Jackson. And it's interesting, because I did something very similar with my kids. I said, kids, do you know who the President of the United States is? And then one of my kids thought about it, and very thoughtfully said, isn't it Uncle David? I thought that was interesting. I was like, what are you teaching your kids at home? Um, who, who's likeness? And you say, you say uh, Andrew Jackson. You say, the President of the United States. 
right? In other words, Uncle Sam. And then Jesus said, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It's Caesar's, the things that are Caesar's, right, which is possessive. So render to Uncle Sam the things that belong to Uncle Sam. Are you all with me? Now, what belongs to Uncle Sam? Have you ever thought about that? Like back then when Jesus said that, clearly he was saying pay taxes to Caesar. That's a very clear interpretation. But in our day and age, what do we render to Uncle Sam? It might be a little bit different. Number one, it does mean pay taxes, okay? Pay your taxes, right? Number two, it means bring all of your value system into the political arena. Whenever you engage, when you vote, whenever you talk about it, bring all of your value system, right? Number three, I'm really going to actually just rest on number three, uh, and that's the first point. Be a good citizen. Can you turn to someone next to you and just say, be a good citizen? All right, thank you, thank you. Um, and then number four, number four is uh, uh, honor, pay honor and respect for the office and the head of government. Doesn't that also mean render to Uncle Sam what is, belongs to Uncle Sam? Pay respect to the head of government. Romans 13.7 says, pay to all what is owed them. If taxes, taxes, if respect. Respect, then respect. So let me just throw a situation out at you, okay? Like, what would you do if you were me? I was in the car, I was driving, my daughter was in the back, and she started singing this song spontaneously, and it went like this. It went like, Hillary is the best, Donald is the poo-poo. And she's, she's amazing, isn't she? She came up with that all by herself, right? And I'm sitting here like, oh... Now, what would you do at that moment? Would you correct her? Would you rebuke her? Would you harmonize with her? You know, and Donald did that. You know, what would you do? Okay, let me give you another uh, scenario. Now, clearly, uh, people will say things like, uh, not my president. You guys have heard that. Not my president. You guys, maybe we've actually said that. And I just want to throw out the question. You answer the question. Is that respectful? Is it respectful? Are you rendering to Uncle Sam what belongs to Uncle Sam? And the scripture is saying, if respect, then pay respect. You know? Are we, uh, are we being concrete now? Um, I hope we're being relevant but really, here, the principle is be a good citizen. Be a good citizen. Now, let me explain to you why I'm starting here. I don't know if intuitively you understand why I'm starting here, but I want to explain. When a pastor is talking to his or her congregation, one of, one of their pastors talking about, when they're talking about politics, it's a little like a parent talking to their kids about sex. Now, let me explain this. Let me explain this. Uh, in my family, when it was time to talk to my boys about sex, this is what my wife did. She went to Amazon. She bought a book. She received the book, and then she put it in my hands, and she said, be a man, go talk to your kids. <laughs> okay, no, you know Raina, I can't see Raina doing that. It was more like a question, like, are you a man? 
Go, go read this to the kids. Or maybe it was more like an observation. I have noticed that you are a man. And those boys are going to be men. So what do you say? You read this book. Now, here's the thing. I had no problem with reading the book. I was not excited to read the book. But I, I, okay, I not pride my, I, I, I'm one of those parents where I feel like I, 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 I want to talk to my kids about anything. And have it not be weird to just have a good, relaxed, open, vulnerable conversation about things that truly matter. So I, I, I did get in the room. I opened the book. And here's the, th- here's the thing. I was in the middle of the book, and we are talking about the sex. <laughs> I wasn't expecting this because, again, I was like, I should be relaxed. I'm relaxed. And I talk, very approachable, very accessible. Dad's very accessible. So I read in the middle of the book. And in the middle of the book, I had this overwhelming desire to giggle. <laughs> I never, I didn't, I didn't. I didn't know that was going to come. I just, I just like, and I almost, almost didn't giggle. But we haven't, but it was a really good conversation. But here's the point. We were talking about sex, you know, and, uh, and the, the presentation was not, you guys, sex is bad, 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 ooh, uh, stay away. That was not the presentation. You know what the presentation, the biblical presentation of sex is? Sex is good. It is really, no, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say it. I said, I said sex is really good. It is a good gift from God. It's a wonderful gift from God. And human beings have the propensity, this, this tendency of taking a, a really good gift from God and, and just breaking it or misusing it or abusing it outside of the marriage covenant. But originally, it's created by God, and it's meant to do all sorts of good. Now, if that's true about sex, isn't it also true about government? Who created government? Whose idea? It was from God. And when he created it, it was a good gift that he gave to to his people. It's a wonderful gift. It beats anarchy any day. It beats anarchy every day. And so here in, in Romans 13, Paul is actually affirming the design of government. He's saying you should obey your government. You should obey your governmental leaders. And then the reason why that he gives in Romans 13 is he says, you know something? Caesar is a servant of God for your good. Now keep in mind, this is Caesar who actually winded up ultimately killing Paul. But he lived and he died by those words of God. And so we should too. Now, um, give me five minutes. I want to talk about the implications. I want to build a case for the implications. But let let me say this first. In the same way, when Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, what Jesus is doing is he's bringing legitimacy to a pagan government. Now, I just want you to think about about that. That is really radical. It was shocking to the people who heard Jesus say this. He's bringing legitimacy to a pagan government. Now, the Jews, ever since the time of Moses, they were thinking uh, government of God. And they were thinking human government. And they always had a concept, you combine them. Under one national theocracy, you combine them, right? And same with the Romans. Same with the Romans. Romans, you got politics, 
and the head of politics is Caesar, and you got religion, and the head of religion is Caesar, and Caesar is God. They combined them. Here is Jesus separating them, saying, look, <laughs> uh, Caesar is not God. But he's kind of saying, and it's okay. Even though it's not a Christian nation, they can still do good. And you should still pay taxes. And you should still give them proper respect. You all see that. Now, uh, let's keep on going. There are two implications. There are two implications for this. I don't have time to really develop the implications. I'm just going to put them out there, and they're just food for further thought, okay? Now, if Jesus is saying yes to something, he must be saying no to something else. If Jesus is saying yes to a, and legitimizing a pagan state, then he must be saying no to what? He must be saying no to a national theocracy. He must be saying no to building one Christian nation. Now, what does that mean? It means that the government is somewhat limited. They can do good, but you can't expect government to do ultimate good. You can't expect government to be the ultimate vehicle of God's change for this planet. And when you go, well, then where, where is the ultimate vehicle? Look around. The church is God's ultimate vehicle for change on this planet. That's why what we do here is really, really important. We are in the business of making disciples. Why? Because God wanted world changers. And the church is filled with world changers. That's you. That's me. What we do here is really important. Okay, first implication is that God is saying no to this, like, one Christian nation. Um, he's not ultimately building his... Uh, his, fulfilling his purposes through government, but it's through the church. Now, second implication, this one really quick. If he is saying no to one Christian nation, you know, he's also saying yes to another thing. And the other thing that he's saying yes to is an international community, is an international community. And you see that right before Jesus goes back to heaven, he says, make disciples of what? Of all nations. We're going international, folks. We're not just thinking about this nation, but the gospel must be spread to all nations, to all peoples, to all ethnic groups. And coming in the spring of 2017, we're really going to talk about that. I'm really excited about that. But you see, Jesus is making room for that, and then he goes there. Let's not forget the first point that we made with this message, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. The implication for us, the application point is be a good citizen. I wanted to give you guys an example of what it looks like to be a good citizen, especially in the public eye. Do you, how many of you know who Ernie Johnson is? You, 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 maybe you do, some of you do, and maybe you do better because you saw a video recently, which I'm going to play in just a moment. But you probably, if I showed you a picture of him, you probably would say, who is that? But... If I showed you a picture of him sitting next to Charles Barkley, then you go, oh, that guy, right? He's a sports uh, analyst, and uh, he, he's at the same panel with Charles Barkley. It's a big kind of personality to kind of handle. Um, and here he is actually modeling to all of us what it looks like to be a good citizen. So take a, take a, take a watch.
wasn't that so good? Maybe you should watch it like a second time. That was really good. That was good. But, uh, here, here is a man who is living by his conviction. He's being a good citizen, right? He's being hopeful. He's being respectful. He's not holding back. I mean, he, he's calling out what he sees. But he's being hopeful. He's being respectful. And he is pointing the way to Jesus. He is pointing to ultimate hope. And uh, I was just watching that. It's like, man, that's inspirational. That's really, really cool. Now, uh, we talked about the uh, 16 words, but we only share the first half. There is a second half to those words, but let me tell you the point first. I want to tell you the point, and then I'm going to sort of uh, unpack it, okay? So, uh, uh, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and basically we were saying from that, uh, God has called us to be good citizens. And then for the second point, and I want you to hold on to this point, we need to know that we are ultimately accountable to God. You need to know that you are ultimately accountable to God. And we're going to get that from the second part of this statement that changed politics. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Here's the second part. And to God the things that are God's. And to God the things that are God's. And the people marveled. Okay. Now, we were doing this thing where we were kind of acting it out just to make it a little bit more clear. I think we should go back to that. Mark gave me $20. Uh, we were looking at the $20. Okay, actually, let's, let's, let's do that again. We we're looking at the $20, you remember. And then, then Jesus said, uh, whose likeness is this denarius? And the people said, Caesar. Now, I, I imagine at that moment, maybe, maybe, Jesus took the denarius and gave it back to the man. Okay, so I'm going to do that with Mark. I'm going to take the $20 and give it back to, the, to Mark. But what I want Mark to do is just stand up, okay? Because now, before it was like, look at the denarius. All the eyes were on the denarius. And then when I give it to Mark, then all the eyes are on Mark. So Mark, could you just stand up and just look at everyone? Now, could you give Mark a just long, searching look like you're looking deep into his soul, okay? You're looking <laughs> deep, in, deep into right here, deep into right here, okay? So the man and Jesus go, here's the denarius, give it back to the man. Now the focus is on the man, okay? But the echo of what he just said, maybe you still hear the echo, the echo, the echo. Whose likeness is this? And people said, Caesar, right? And then you're giving it back to man. You're looking at the man, and maybe the, the question is still echoing. Whose likeness is this man in? And you say, you know, his parents. No, no, no. You look deeper. Look deeper. You say, oh, he's made in the likeness of God. Uh, you, see where, you see where Jesus is going here? Like, likeness. Okay, and then he says, now you give to God the things that belong to God. I'm going to give this, well, okay, I'm going to give this back to Mark. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Give to God the things that belong to God. Okay. If he's made in God's likeness, that means God created him. If he's made in God's likeness, that means he was actually created for God. If he's made in God's likeness, that means he belongs to God. Which means that you belong to God. And when Jesus says, give to God the things that are God's, what does he mean? He means all of everything inside yourself. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your, your entire being belongs to God. Give to God the things that are God's. Now, I need to point this out. 
Pretty quickly, I think if you really think about that, you look around, you look around, you go, wait a second, I don't know one person who has really, really, really done that. Given to God everything within themselves. I know some people maybe get like 80%, maybe 28%, some people in the, in the middle, but I don't know one person who has completely given to God all that belongs to God. You know, it's interesting, there's this one pastor that said, you know, all religions, they all lead to God. But then he clarified what he meant. He said, all religions lead right to the judgment seat of God. They all lead right to the judgment seat of God. But there's only one religion that has a savior. And when you realize that everything you are belongs to God, and when you realize I have fallen so short in giving him everything, it leads you to the point where you realize I need a savior. And the Christian faith says, that is really good news. There is a savior. There is a Savior. And he was actually crushed for our sins. And that is why we love him so dearly. And if you don't know this Savior, I, I, I'm praying that maybe today will be the first time you will put your faith in Jesus. What an amazing, amazing day that will be for you and for all of eternity. I want to go back to the second point, and we're going to spend the rest of our time just unpacking how to live in the reality of a fallen world with an imperfect government, okay? These are certain realities that kind of clash, and we need to go there, and we need to talk about that, so let's talk about that. I think it's, uh, we need to go there. Now, uh, again, the second point is know that all of us are ultimately accountable to God, and Jesus makes this point when he makes the distinction between Caesar and God. Like, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what belongs to God, right? He's making a distinction. He's creating a chasm because that's the reality of things. Caesar is not God. Give to Caesar this, give to God that, which makes you know, okay, they're different. Which kind of begs the question, what happens when little Caesar and big God want different things? What do you do when they clash? And now that's a question that a lot of Christians are asking. That's a question that a lot of people are asking. What do you do when Caesar and God disagree? What do you do when there's this? Let me go quickly to Acts 4.18. So they, that's, um, that's the government, that's the local authorities, they called the apostles and charged them not to speak and teach at all in the name of Jesus, you know? I know you guys are sharing, don't do that. This is the local authorities. This is like little Caesar, you know. Don't do, stop, stop that. I guess you could say the law. They're passing this law. Stop uh, preaching in the name of Jesus. Don't do that anymore. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They're like, look. What would you do? What would you have us do if you were in our place? If, would you have us listen to you, little Caesar, or to big, infinite God? So we need to be very clear here. If government tells you to do something that God has told you not to do, you should not do it. That would be rendering to Caesar the things that belong to God. Caesar cannot have that ultimate authority. That would be obeying a lower authority by contradicting a higher authority. 
Obey the government, yes, except when the government is in conflict with God's will. So this is what we must do. If the government passes a law, you need to, you need to take that law and you need to hold it in light of a higher authority. That, that's what all of us are called to do. Here, here is the law of the government. We hold it to the light of God's authority in Scripture. And then we ask certain questions, and we, we ask questions like, is this law right before the eyes of God? Is this justice? And if there are places where it's not right, we need to call it out. If a law that is passed is steeped in racism, then we need to hold it up to the authority of God, and if it doesn't match, we need to call out the places where it doesn't match. If there is a law that is passed that has racist undertones, then we need to hold it to the light and call out the places where it has racist undertones. And I don't know, um, this is kind of scary for us. You know, it's, it involves speaking up, and sometimes, sometimes it's hard to do that. I'm going to quote... Uh, uh, something from Martin Luther King, he, he once said that the church is the conscience of the state. That is the role that we play. We are the conscience of the government. In order to be a good conscience, we, we, have, to, we have to speak up. We have to speak up. But it, it, it works in the other on the way too. Like if, if Donald Trump does something good, then we should be very quick to actually affirm the good that we see. If he appoints Supreme Court justices and we really agree with that decision, then, you know, say it on Facebook, you know, (laughs) put it on Twitter, talk about it in the grocery line, talk to your barber about that, but be careful, (laughs) you know. Uh, We need to be vocal about it. We need to to speak our minds. Uh, Okay, now what about the other way? Let me throw this out there. If Muslims are attacked... Or if Muslims are harmed, who should be the first people to defend them? Uh, I'll share a story. A good friend shared this with me the other day. He was in BART, and BART was uh, packed. I think I'm getting the details right. And you guys have seen this scene before. You've been in BART. You're sitting down, and then people come in. They fill up. And every seat was taken. And then you get the people in the middle aisle. And they're like, they're like, they're like kind of like, like vultures. They're looking for an empty seat so they can just kind of pounce on it. And so it's, it's a packed uh, train. And then my, my friend observed, it's all packed. Every seat is taken except one seat. And he was looking at the seat and he was looking at the person who was next uh, to that empty seat. And it was a Muslim woman. And my friend knows that she's Muslim because she was wearing a, um, uh, a hijab you know, a headscarf and a body robe, right? It's very clear that she was Muslim. And she was really small. And the seat next to her was empty. And, you know, and I'm, I mean, he's telling me the story. I'm like, no, no, come on. Not, not in the Bay Area. That would not happen in the Bay Area. That's not. He's like, yeah, it was in Bart. And he said again, yeah, she was really small, like very non-threatening, you know? It wasn't, it wasn't a scary presence. And she just looks sad. Let me ask you, who should be the first people to go and sit next to that woman? 
Shouldn't it be Christians? I bet you if Jesus were there, he would run up and sit next to that woman. I bet you he would. Now, let me, let me explain, explain why. Uh, Jesus gave this parable one time about this Jewish person who is beaten up by robbers and basically left for dead. And then two other Jewish people came by and they stepped, stepped over him. And then a third guy came by, didn't step over, looked at the man, felt compassion, put his own life at risk by stopping and bending down and caring for his wounds. Then he picked him up, it must have been heavy, put him on his donkey, and they went to an inn where he paid for a, a night and cared for him all through the night. You know who that third man was? A good Samaritan. Now you have to remember that in this day and in, in, in this day and time, Jews didn't know there was such a thing that existed. Like, you, you know the word good, and you know the word Samaritan, but they never put it together in the same sentence, you know? And this was because the Jews hated the Samaritans for at least a couple reasons. One was along ethnic lines, but another was religious lines. And Jesus said, love knows no boundaries. Neighbor love knows no boundaries. No ethnic boundary. No religious boundary. Your neighbor is the person in need. And I bet you the Muslims, Americans are so scared these days. Who should be the first people to reach out to them? Shouldn't it be Christians? Shouldn't it be us? Shouldn't it be Christians who believe in a God whose son died on a cross to bring peace to his enemies? Shouldn't it be us? May God give us the courage to do this. I have uh, one more word and then get ready to start praying. Uh, And talking to my friend who moved to the Midwest. And uh, he he said a couple different things. Uh, I mean, like one thing he was saying is that if Muslims are forced to register, he was thinking that he should possibly register himself. Not as a Muslim, but as a Christian, but just go and register and then write what you're doing is despicable. You know, some sort of like vocal sort of protest is to, to, to speak his mind and to be the, the voice of conscience. But in this conversation that I was having with my friend, he said, but what about the unborn? That's what he was, he was challenging me with. What about the unborn? He said this to me. Rosaria Butterfield became a pro-life advocate when she was struck by a verse from Psalm 102.18. And the verse goes like this. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created, yet to be created, may praise the Lord. She was so struck by this. She was pro-choice, actually, and then this verse just hit her, and afterwards she became a pro-life advocate. Can I ask you guys, are you willing to advocate, advocate for a people yet to be created? My friend who lives in the Midwest, he said, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to advocate for the unborn where he's living now. You know, you, you advocate for the unborn and people give you a high five, you know. But, you know, he said this, he said, you know who, what it's really hard to speak out against in the Midwest? It's really hard to speak out against racism. And I was like, you know, in the Bay Area, it's totally opposite <laughs> It's really easy, actually, in the Bay Area to speak out against racism. Really, really easy to do that. 
Why? Because it's PC, actually, to speak out against racism, in a sense. But you know what's not PC? Is to advocate for the unborn. Is to speak for those of a generation yet to come. It is really hard to do that. I mean, people will judge you right on this way. You'll be like, oh, you're one of them, the, the narrow-minded people. And so you don't hear a lot of that in the Bay Area. But, you know, when we look at the whole counsel of God, you can't just cherry pick, oh, I like this one, this one, awesome. you got to take in the whole counsel of God, right? We stand for the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that we like. So uh, I guess J.D. was right. This was a heavy message, you know, and I can see the faces, and I can see you guys taking it. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to think about. These days are very interesting days. God did not promise an easy, comfortable life, but he's given us an amazing opportunity to share his light in a generation of darkness. And you and I are called to be faithful and to change the world, actually. You are like salt on rotting meat, Jesus said. You are like light in a very dark place. God has called us to be a beacon of light. Our church and what we do here is very, 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 very important. So may God give us the courage to speak out when it's time to speak out, to sit next to a person that maybe we have some, some fears about sitting next to a person, and to live his gospel every day of our lives. And uh, now it's time to pray. If you look up on the, uh, the slide, again, uh, my vision for this morning didn't want to just uh, be talking, wanted to give us an opportunity as a community to pray. I felt like that time would be really appropriate if we could take some time just to, uh, to pray for our government, to pray for our president-elect, and to come to God together in doing this. Why don't we all uh, stand up? I think that might be a, a good posture of prayer. And... Uh, Here's what we can do. You can all bow your heads, and you can close your eyes. And I was thinking that uh, because I, I just came from Naga, and, and in India, well, at least in Nagaland in India, people would all pray at the same time, but they would do it in a louder voice. I was thinking that some of us might, um, it might be a little weird, especially the first time we're doing this. So, but why don't we do that, but in a quieter voice, you know, uh, just like in a whisper, Right? You guys want to, like, practice? I know that's a little bit weird, but I, I just want... No, no practice. We don't have to practice. But uh, you just whisper in, like, a quiet voice, you know. And uh, we're going to really make this time a prayerful time. Um, I'm going to guide you through it, give you a moment, like, 20 seconds to pray your own prayer, your own version of that prayer, and then I will kind of guide you to the second part. So we're all going to engage, okay? Um, Lord... The first part of our prayer is we're going to pray and think about the providence and the sovereignty of God. And what we mean by this is like we are going to just acknowledge that God is in complete control. God is in complete control, right? And you can actually start that prayer by saying something like, God, sovereign God, you are in complete control. And then from there, you just kind of take it over. Let me start us off, and then I'll give you about 30 seconds, and you can just pray your own form of that prayer. God, sovereign God, you are in complete control. 
Father, just using the words of Ernie Johnson, we never know from season to season who will be sitting in the Oval Office, but we always know who will be sitting on the throne. I love that, Lord. It's so true. You are in complete control. We're feeling anxious. We can turn to you. If we feel like we live in a crazy world, we know that you are working your good, not despite our bad choices, but even through it, you are in complete control. And we give you praise for that. We want to now pray for President-elect Donald Trump. Uh, You guys can pray for President-elect Donald Trump. Wisdom, courage, integrity, compassion. And you can start off praying. Now, again, this is an open invitation. Even if you've never prayed before, Um, today might be a good day to start. And you can start off praying and talking to God by saying, Lord, we pray for Donald Trump, and then just go ahead and take it from there. Lord, we pray for President-elect Donald Trump. Father, we pray for President-elect Donald Trump. We pray that you would give him wisdom. We pray that you would give him courage. We pray that you would give him integrity and compassion. Please give him a heart for the poor. May you shape his heart in the image of your son. We pray that you would surround him with wise counselors, and if you feel like there's not that, that you would replace with wise, trustworthy counselors. Father, we pray by your grace that President Trump will be a better man than many people expect and a better man than we deserve. And we direct these prayers to the only king who keeps all of his promises, the king who has never stopped sitting on the throne, the king who is goodness himself. And because of that, we can rest, we can smile, and we can have joy. We pray in Jesus' name.